On today's show, I interview Ian Cordasco. I start out by asking him about Betamax, a Python library for replaying request interactions, but we get into quite a bit of other stuff like Flake 8, uh, why you shouldn't have Java in colleges, and quite a few other topics. I hope you like it. I'm Brian Aachen, and this is the Python Test Podcast, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. I announce new shows on Twitter at Test Podcast, and follow me at Brian Aachen. Let's go ahead and get started. First of all, I, I ran across a, an article featuring Betamax, and I was curious and got a hold of you. And then you uh, sent me that link with, uh, with your 2015 PyCon talk. If anybody's not familiar with uh, Betamax, what is Betamax? So Betamax is a library that will um, wrap up a request session and kind of swap out the adapters without telling you so that when you make a request, it sees a request, it records a request. If it has data that match, that, uh, if it has a request that's already been made that looks like the request that's being made now, it'll replay the response. If it doesn't, and uh, you're telling it to record new uh, responses, it'll allow the, resp- the request to go out to the network, talk to the server, and when the response comes back, it'll record it and save it for you. Um, this is really great for testing because uh, I've found that mocking out a response from a server, when you're testing a library or something else that uh, talks to an external resource on, over HTTP, can be messy, and if the server changes its responses fairly often, you're hand editing uh, mocked out data and you have to do it fairly frequently. Otherwise, your tests are going to not represent reality. Um, so Betamax makes it really simple because it just stores the recorded interactions in a file. And then if you want to just re-record them, you just remove the file and it'll recreate the file for you. Um, and you don't have to really do very much work. You don't have to write out any of the data by hand. You're just using your library like you would. And the only thing you're doing is you're kind of like clean Betamax in the middle. That's pretty cool. So it, in, instead of having to come up with the the mock interface, you're just um, you're letting the resource itself tell you what it what it returns. With exactly. Live, live data. Well, exactly. it's not live data all the time, but at least once right. get the right get the real stuff and then replay it. That's so cool. That's very cool. Like if somebody's sitting down and to uh, test something, I'm assuming it's not gonna it doesn't take too long to get up to speed on figuring out how this all works. Um, if you're familiar with requests, it shouldn't take you very long. Um, it's just a matter of knowing that you take a session and you pass it into the Betamax object, and then you call use cassette uh, to set the cassette name so it knows where to look for the file. Um, and you can either use it as a context manager, or you can call start and stop explicitly, um, and you're done. It's it's pretty much that easy. That's all you need to use. That's all you need to set up Betamax, basically. I guess the cassettes, that's what the recordings are called? Yes. Okay. Um, Now, where do those get stored? Can you specify where those are? Yes. Um, You can, it's called the cassette library directory um, or cassette library dir. I forget what the exact variable name is. Um, But yes, uh, you can specify where those are. And uh, you can also specify what the format is. So I get possibly, like, if if I knew a... um, an API was going was changing. Uh, I could, uh, I guess, record a set of those cassette or a library of cassettes and like archive that off and and so that I could use that later. 
yeah. if I needed to, to compare to two versions of, of a, an API, I guess. Yes. I mean, you could, it's very flexible. Um, and we don't keep any kind of like track of the files. So if you wanted to swap out files at some point, as long as it has the same name, uh, Betamax doesn't care. Okay. Um, that, that said, like if your tests are expecting one thing and the request returns something else, um, that might be a problem. <laughs> your test might start failing. Well, I mean, having control over when your um, when your tests are actually talking with a live uh, source—that's a really cool thing. So, it seems obvious that you'd want to somehow not actually use an API all the time when you're when you're testing your application. So, you would think that. Um, except when I was first testing GitHub Three Pi, um, I. I, like I, so I started writing GitHub Repi, uh, I don't know, six months after I started, after I learned Python. And so I didn't know, I knew a little bit about using the unit test library that was in the standard library, but I didn't know a better way of testing, um, the library itself, GitHub Repi. And at that point, GitHub's API was still in beta. So they were changing things rapidly and things were shifting under my feet, um, without any notice. And so, uh, what I would do is I would run the tests against GitHub's API, and because it was in beta, the anonymous rate limit was 5,000 requests per hour, which was more than enough uh, for me. Um, the problem became when uh, V3 became very like it became a release candidate, and then they lowered the anonymous rate limit from 5,000 requests an hour to 60 an hour, six zero. And so my tests started failing wonderfully. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was spectacular. So that's when I started mocking things out, um, but I was never happy with that solution. Um, so you you, uh, you started off with unit tests. Is that what you used to use? Uh, I don't. I use PyTest now okay. wherever, wherever I can. And do you, do you make use of the um, the fixtures? All the time. I love fixtures. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, Betamax actually ships with the PyTest fixture, so you can pretty much just set up, you can install Betamax, and then you can start using the Betamax fixture in your PyTest tests as well. Okay, so the PyTest fixture is part of the be- the, the standard Betamax download then? Yes. Um, and I'm I'm not going to make you like describe the whole thing, because actually that the uh, 2015 talk is... I think it was it's a great introduction to that to Betamax, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes so anybody wants to go out and get more information on it. That was um, that was a pretty good talk, and rehashing the entire thing right here would kind of be pointless. I think <laughs> I referenced that uh, that 2015 talk. Is there is that a good place to go, or is there someplace else for people to to learn more about that? Um, I haven't blogged much about Betamax, although I've been attending to. Um, there are a few other blog posts where people have used Betamax to test things like their usage of Bottle 3. I can send you those links too. Oh, that'd be great. Then I'll just I'll stick them in the show notes. Sure. But so what tell me uh why 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 did you make it? I mean, there was I guess there was VCR already. Was that existing before you made Betamax? Yes. Um so when I wrote Betamax, I was working at a consultancy and uh, I was working with the author of the original VCR library written in Ruby. Um, I was working with Myron Marson, uh, and we were using VCR extensively in that client's projects. And uh, I realized that 
as the author of GitHub 3Py, that I was write, handwriting out mock data a lot and that GitHub was changing the data, so I wanted something like that. Um, VCRPy did not work exactly the way I wanted it to, um, so I and it seemed kind of dead at the time. So I just started toying around with Betamax, and originally it was just meant to be some kind of little test helper in GitHub 3Py, but then I realized that I wanted to use it for other things too, so I made it its own library. So GitHub 3Py, what, what is that? It's a little, oh, not so little, library um, to interact with version 3 of GitHub's API. Um, it wraps everything up in a nice little object model and uh, is meant to be, it was originally intended to be simple to use like requests, but um, GitHub's API is too large for that to be the case. Is it something that you're working on still to main, maintain uh, Betamax or GitHub 3Py? Both, yes. Okay. Is this a four-year work, or is it a side project? So um, GitHub 3Py has always been a side project. Um, Betamax was a side project. Um, now that I work at Rackspace, OpenStack, independent of me, this is not my fault, um, has started using Betamax uh, for testing libraries. Cool. And so um, if bugs come up with OpenStack using it, I can fix them at work. Rewind a bit. How did, and I usually don't ask these sorts of questions, but I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. But how did, how did you start up with Python, and how did you in, end up a uh, computer science background? Or um, I actually have a math background, but the college that I went to made us take uh, one CS course, and I kind of fell in love with programming. Um, I taught myself C, and then a friend of mine wanted to make a web app, so he gave me a uh, learning Python book by Mark Lutz. And oh, that's a good one. I read about halfway through it, and I just started hacking away at stuff. Um, and that was, I guess, five years ago. Uh, and it's always been kind of a, a for-fun language. Um, the consultancy where I worked at was a Ruby shop. It was a Rails consultancy. Um, and working with Rackspace is the first actual Python job that I've had. Uh, the CS was the CS class uh, in C then uh, in your math program. It was. It was actually uh, introduction to programming with Java. And it wasn't a great class. And so while I knew I enjoyed programming, I did not know I, did, I liked Java. So I just, I figured C was simpler. It's a simpler syntax. Um, it's what the kernel uses. And I started hacking on that. Um, I've come to appreciate Java, honestly. Um, it's kind of nice. I have not come to appreciate Java. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it as one of those languages that they made up to try to get people to not take computer science. I guess it's better when when I started at uh, University of Oregon, the uh, first class they had us take was in Scheme, and Scheme or Lisp was was common at the time for a lot of universities to to try to get people to learn stuff. And they they said the main reason was to try to get us to think in objects, and I think it was just to try to filter people out. My college now um, it was actually the last year that I was there. Uh, so I got a bachelor's and a master's. Um, Last year I was there, they started teaching Python in that uh, intro course. Um, so I don't think that was their intention. I think that they had been teaching Java like that for about 10 or 12 years. And it used to be that Java was the, the cool industry language that was easy to learn. But I think Java has grown to the point where it's not exactly great for beginning programmers. I, I, I guess I learned it late. I, I learned Perl and other things first and uh, just was offended by most of Java. But um, so you at Rackspace, do you um, you said you 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 have a Python, you use Python all the time now. Um, 
what, so can you talk about what you do there at Rackspace? Yeah, of course. It's all open source. Um, so I work on the private cloud team at Rackspace. Okay. Uh, what we do is we write Ansible playbooks to deploy OpenStack in a highly available manner um, for customers that it's either in their data center or in a third-party data center or in our data center. Um, so we just manage the playbooks and other integrations and enhancements around OpenStack. Um, I work on the playbooks. I work on OpenStack. I'm an OpenStack core reviewer uh, for a couple of projects. And um, since I maintain a bunch of other projects in, in Python um, that OpenStack uses, if something happens with one of those, I can usually uh, take some time to work on that too. You haven't been out of the university very long then. No, I, I got my bachelor's in 2012 and my master's in 2013. I was going to ask you about how much testing they taught at the university, but they probably don't teach a lot of testing in math. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> I don't think they taught very much testing in the CS program either, because most of my friends were CS majors. And I, I think in all of their assignments, the, the only testing they did was hand testing. Like, oh, does this work? Yes, it seems to work now. All right, send it into the professor. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in in the industry, we we kind of take it for granted that either some form of test-first programming or test-driven development or uh, d- developing tests alongside of developing code is going to happen. The way it's taught, it's it's frequently like, well, let's teach people how to program. And then, like, I don't know, maybe three or four years later, we'll tell them about testing. Uh, that doesn't seem very test-first to me. Is there anything else you'd like to, to plug or talk about? I guess the only thing I would like to plug is the fact that um – the Python Code Quality Authority exists, and it's collecting projects. So we have Flake 8, Pep 8, McCabe, um, PyLint, PyLint's Asteroid, um, PyCodeStyle, which used to be called Pep257. Okay, uh, I'm going to back you up a little bit. <laughs> the Python Code Quality Authority, is that right? Yes. Tell me more about this Code Quality Authority. So I started it because uh, about a year ago, um, we wanted to move Flake, Flake 8 off of Mercurial and Bitbucket. And it didn't feel right to me to just move it to my personal account because it wasn't my project that I started. So I, in the vein of the Python Cryptographic Authority and the Python Packaging Authority, which were kind of half-serious uh, organizations, I made the Python Code Quality Authority. Um, because I already maintain the code quality mailing list at python.org. Um, and so when PyLint was looking to move off Bitbucket and Mercurial to GitHub, um, we actually talked about adding that to the Python Code Quality Authority, and we moved PEP8 and PEP257 there as well. Um, and since I was already the maintainer for McCabe and a few other things, I've also moved other related projects into that since then. Wow. You've actually done quite a bit for the Python community in just a handful of years. I guess. <laughs> I, I think it's cool. Um, so um, you did Flake 8, right? Is that? I mean, maintain it. Uh, Tariq Ziad, uh, I think I'm saying his name correctly. He's the one who authored it. And okay. I took over and for him, uh, I guess, about two or three years ago. So uh, in 2013-ish, we put out Flake 8 2.0, um, and that was almost entirely authored by myself and uh, Florence Zycluna, who at the time was a maintainer of Pep8. Um, and then we just decided we didn't want to dump Bitbucket anymore because Bitbucket had a not-so-great UI and people were 
refusing to contribute because they didn't like the UI. Um, so we moved it to GitLab because that's free and open source software. Um, and uh, at the time, it was very similar to GitHub's UI. Uh, they've since taken their own branding direction. I mean, we, we mirror Flakegate to GitHub so people can send pull requests there, too. Okay. Okay, I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to check this out more and and uh, <laughs> and uh, learn more. And I may I may give uh, pull you back in to talk more about some of these individual things. I think an episode just dedicated to uh, using static analysis tools like Flake and Pat Bait and other things are a good thing. But real quickly though, if somebody was only going to use one thing uh, to run over their code um, for static analysis, what do you think they should run? It depends on how pedantic they want the tool to be. Um, if they want it to be very pedantic and very configurable, um, Pylint is that tool. Pylint has a lot of really intelligent, um, very, very specific checks. Um, and it has a lot of them, so it's very configurable. And sometimes the first time you run it, it can be overwhelming, but it's a fantastic tool. Um, if you want something that you can just get started with and you want kind of the default style checker for most projects, which is PEP8. Um, you can install Flake8 and you'll get um, PyFlakes installed and PEP8, and those will both be on by default. And if you want complexity checking, it'll also install McCabe, but McCabe is off by default. And McCabe um, will tell you how complex your functions are, so you can know if you need to refactor them. So Flake8 is a little simpler. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a hammer as opposed to as opposed to like a, a power tool with pilot one of the things that I, I i'm i'm bad about the line length thing and i think the 80 character <laughs> thing is ridiculous can i turn that off on all of these tools or you can you can actually i don't think pilot checks the line length to be honest okay. um but with pep8 you can configure it so you can say 99 is the maximum line length or 120 or whatever you want it to be and you can configure that for your project or you can also configure it globally with Flake 8 and Pep 8. Okay, awesome. Um, do you have Do you have a preference on uh, line length uh, yourself? Um, so I I tend to use tiny screens and like to have multiple splits open in them. So I try to keep it around seventy eight. Um, but I also recognize the fact that some code bases don't lend themselves to that, and uh, like OpenStack doesn't quite lend itself to that, even though they force it. Um, so. I mean, I, I always recommend people go watch uh, the 2015 talk by Raymond Hedinger beyond Pep8. Um, it's a really fantastic talk. Uh, he, A, spends about 10 or 15 minutes in the beginning bashing Pep8, the tool, and Pep8, the document, and people who are very, very um, adamant about following Pep8 and making other people follow it. Um, but then the rest of it, he shows how he took some code that was kind of auto-ported from Java, and he made it satisfy Pep8, the tool. Um, but uh, like it could be so much better. Like Pep8 is just kind of like a visual guide, right? But there's uh, there's so much more you can do to make your, your code Pythonic, because Pep8 itself is not in, in and of itself a way to make your code Pythonic. Yeah, I, I, I admit I haven't watched that yet, so I'll have to go check that out. It's 45 minutes, but it's good. It's worth it. Okay. And I'll also put a link in the show notes. And clearly, I've just touched the tip of the iceberg with the the uh, the, the knowledge and the, the help you can uh, give the, the rest of the community. So um, I already foresee a request to try to get you back on. So so we'll um, 
we'll try to wrap things up now. Uh, thanks a ton for, for coming on and, um, and yeah, we'll talk to you later. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. Ian Cordasco. Thanks for listening. Show notes can be found at testpodcast.com. You can also find out information about supporting the show or even being a sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Patreon supporters. Find out more at patreon.com slash Aachen or go to pythontesting.net slash support. Thanks for listening.